right. Good morning. Good morning. It, good late morning. This is yes, a this is normal morning. Normal. Sorry. Good normal morning. We haven't successfully changed morning norms with our four early morning episodes. They're still really early, and this is still normal. I, I agree. Uh, I've got coffee. It is. Um, I'm off work today, so we were able to push recording uh, all the way back until post nine o'clock, which is just an absolute luxury. And I was still late. Uh, I, I'm. I will own up to that. I guess. Uh, um, I'm awake all the way, so you don't have. I, I. Not that I listened to the entire episode, but I'll listen back to pieces of it, and it is interesting to hear my voice transform from person who just woke up to sort of awake person over the course of an <laughs> hour. Like my voice actually changes. Uh, um. Yeah, my mother's in town, so we get, there's some extra logistics going on over here. Um. I. I was late because I was cooking breakfast. Um, okay, that's yeah. a. That's a real reason. I'll yeah. accept that. Food-based. Mm-hmm. Almost no, always. Food-based excuses will fly. Um, what? Uh, I'm recording a podcast. Ask, ask uh, mommy about your uh, travel Yahtzee questions. Archer, so one of the things I brought back, I'll tell you all about my trip um, in, a, in as, as few boring terms as possible. But one of the things I brought back is a toy I had growing up, which was a... Uh, a set of travel Yahtzee. Yes, I had travel Yahtzee as well. Oh, really? Oh, I cool. mean, I assume it's the one where you shake it and you like pop it from uh-huh. the back and it locks all the dice in whatever. Yeah, you, yeah. you pop and lock it. We popped and locked when we were yeah. growing up. It was, yeah. uh, you know. Mm. Oh, coffee. Now, you yes. actually liked travel yahtzee though this is a well, fond thing what's interesting is i was given travel yahtzee in i believe a secondhand fashion where it was just sort of the travel yahtzee so the 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 um the travel yahtzee for the those of our readers who don't are, aren't familiar with travel yahtzee yahtzee is a game where you you roll five die <laughs> uh travel yahtzee the die are uh dice are uh are suspended within a, a sort of f- like a frame a little row and you turn it upside down and there's five circles and each of the circles is just big enough for the dice to move around, but not enough for it to fall out. So you turn it upside down, you like rub it on your arm and that rolls the die and you flip it back over and you see what, what you got. And then you can snap the bottom in and it kind of pushes the dice up into the hole just enough for it to be locked. So you can sit there and like fix the results of three dice and then continue to do the upside down rolling thing. Um, I got travel Yahtzee uh, in a baggie with a pad of Yahtzee, uh, paper. And, um, and I, no one taught me how Yahtzee worked. So I remember just sort of trying to infer Yahtzee rules on a road trip and <laughs> generally being pretty uninterested, uh, with it. Uh, so Archer has already been really into Yahtzee and has a little Yahtzee game. We got him cause that's like 100% up his alley. Okay. Um, and, uh, so I, I was able to hand him my travel Yahtzee, which is you know twenty, probably twenty twenty five years old, and uh, has a almost completely unused pad of Yahtzee scoring paper <laughs> with it. <laughs> I'm still not used to using multiple decades to describe things I've owned. Yeah, I do it. I, I be having to say, uh, yeah, twenty thirty years. I, I get really grumpy about it. I'm already though like dad who's like take care of like I, i'm right next to me is a copy of uh calvin and hobbs the indispensable calvin and hobbs um and next to it are, are is a stack of about 30 pages of the indispensable calvin and hobbs um that have just separated kind of come, from their yeah. bindings yeah it's sort of this the glue uh, i dropped it the glue has just kind of d- aged uh like it the, the nothing so ripped. you're mad at i mean it's not necessarily that it was mistreated you're mad at the passage of time i'm mad entropy. at the ex- inexorable march of time is the primary thing that i'm mad at most of the time um for <laughs> just sure seething under the surface i think it's <laughs> probably true of a lot of people we just avoid it yeah like i i can't um, for all the books that have gotten ripped especially when the kids were younger this one yeah it's this this book this book has just sort of a peaceful disintegration like it they don't they didn't bend it they didn't rip it i archer just said felix touched it and it came apart you know and (laughs) you know what this book is i bought this book when i was living in our first house in 
this is copyright 1992, and I'm pretty sure I bought it that year. So this is a 26, 25, 26-year-old book, um, and I don't think that paperback comic books were um, necessarily made to last. Um, and, you know, for the changing of times since Calvin and Hobbes was released, it is no less awesome and appropriate. Yeah, I, if anything, the only times that I having read a bunch of this again recently because I adore Calvin and Hobbes, the only ones that feel even a little bit dated are when he tries to make like commentary about the television. And that's only because the complaints about commercials and TV shows are have switched mediums like the meaning is still right. there. It's, right. Yeah, and I was thinking that specifically is that those all still make perfect sense. It's just not as literal uh, or one to one. But then it never was dependent on that. So yeah, right. Way to go. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, now it would be the same thing except he'd be complaining about like bumpers in front of YouTube videos and stuff like the. <laughs> The the like grotesqueness of advertising is still around. It's just delivered differently. My kids can't. I mean, this is everyone's kids probably, but my kids can't handle commercials. Like they're like, where did the show go? What's going on? Um, they don't. You know, we almost never watch broadcast TV, um, except for like sports. Um, Calvin and Hobbes, though, man, I um. I, as an adult, like reading through this, and my sisters, uh, somebody at Christmas gave me the uh, the the newer book that he they put out recently. Are you familiar with this? I don't think oh, I am. Like uh, in the last, I don't have Chrome open. I'm not going to pull it up. But um, the last couple of years, they put out a book that is sort of a, a retrospective on Calvin and Hobbes, and has little sections about each character and some of the motivations and and stuff like that. Um, I highly recommend it. I mean, it's it's the same form factor as the later Calvin and Hobbes books, like there's treasure everywhere and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just a, a really nice sort of end cap on all of that. And um, as part and it, and by the way, you get to see like early Calvin, like the early draft Calvin who had hair over his eyes before he made his hair go up and um, oh. he yeah, it's very strange to see like kind of der- derpy Calvin. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and like they talk about like what you know the early drafts of the comic strip and some of the other stuff Bill Watterson did things like that. Uh, but what I, it got me reflecting on was how meaningful Calvin and Hobbes was to me as like a seven year old. Um, you think that's about the age? Seems I around I, there. Yeah. Well, for me, there's a very clear delineation because we moved to uh, Pensacola. Uh, the summer before I turned seven, um, and so and my my I had a neighbor named Nick Merchant, and Nick Merchant uh, is the guy. He was like a year older than me, and he introduced me to Calvin and Hobbes as well as the X Men uh, and a number of other things. Uh, and he had a Nintendo, so I'd go to his house, and <laughs> I wouldn't play Nintendo because I was terrible. I'd watch him play Nintendo. You were terrible um, at Nintendo. Well, I didn't have a Nintendo, and I didn't know that there was a run button in Mario, so we would play Mario. Uh, Mario, the Super Mario Bros. Number one, uh-huh. and I would get to that first jump in one one where you have to run to clear it, and I would just never clear it, and then <laughs> it would be someone else's turn. <laughs> right? That's def- that's, that's a thing that happened. That is, I believe that. Yeah. So um, the guy no, with the Nintendo also introduced you to Calvin and Hobbes, and this yeah, was revelatory. It was. It was. Um. I the Calvin. There are certain aspects to Calvin and Hobbes that I've never stopped and th- I've never stopped and thought about what it was missing. Calvin never has a birthday, right? Like uh, the Calvin uh, has uh, the cast of characters in Calvin and Hobbes is extremely small. Um, ultimately, like they're one line characters, like his baseball coach and stuff. But in general, right? It's he doesn't have a sibling. Um, he has one neighbor friend. You know, Susie. You never see Susie playing with other kids. Almost so never. So, is know? this some of the stuff that was brought up in this new book, or mm-hmm. were you just noticing? I it? had I had already been thinking about it. I, I mentioned the book because it's like a good. If you want to go back and like reprocess Calvin and Hobbes, I highly recommend getting that book. Um, but no, I had already been thinking about it because I was reading with it, uh, reading through it with Archer and and things like that. But but Calvin's, uh, the, I think that like the one of the characters. Uh, in Calvin and Hobbes is is the uh, the 
cycle of the seasons, right? Like the yes, definitely. Uh, and that that's really strange to think about, but like uh, there there are almost no holidays represented in Calvin and Hobbes. There's no Thanksgiving, right? There's uh, there's they do they he plays with Valentine's Day, but there's no birthdays. There's no Thanksgiving. There's Christmas, and then there's summer vacation, and that's pretty much it. Um, but uh, it was it was hugely informative uh, for all of us, like how we treated summer, like how we how like how I personally thought of like time passing. No, to go back to the inexorable passage of time, I yeah. think like weirdly Calvin and Hobbes for me as a seven to eleven year old helped me understand like how 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 time is a flat circle basically. <laughs> well, it, it it's true, and it is an odd thing that kids have to. Uh, absorb at some point, and I think it happens around then. Uh, yeah, you just take it for granted, but they really that that concept of things change; they're not going to be the same, you know. And just I don't know. It's a very big thing to have to absorb. So that sort of familiar format and everything that that was and that mirrored it. I think it it's really good for kids to get in that way and maybe that's why we liked it. Yeah, well it was so it's yeah, it's that everything is going to change but also there is a predictableness, there's a familiarity to like each season and things that happen in each season and stuff like that. Right. So that that part of life is cyclical enough that it keeps us from going insane. Uh there's four seasons and they repeat. There's not infinite seasons. Um, that would be frustrating. Well, we have, uh, Florida has sort of like a one, one sort of <laughs> mildly bipolar season. That That is a weird, that, that's an interesting and important detail as Calvin and Hobbes goes through a very, you know, very Midwestern, like here's a, like a touch of summer and spring and fall and it's going to rain and then snow and it, really in Florida, that was all hypothetical. Um, it did snow the winter of 1993. Was I that think? it? I mean, I yeah. remember. Yeah, I, I, we, I, I think that was it. I want to say 93, 94. It snowed in February for like a, a morning, and it was all gone by two in the afternoon. I remember it snowed. So it snowed on Christmas Eve one time as well, but it was more of like a dusting. Um, mm. The snow you're referring to, it actually landed on the ground, and right. uh, you could like I don't know, make a dirty snowball. <laughs> but <laughs> our our neighbors built a eight inch tall snowman. I remember that much. Several uh, years later, uh, it snowed on Christmas Eve, and it was actually quite oh, really? uh, magical. It was that just very light. It was a nice day. A light drifting snow didn't stick. But it was a major event, and I had a next-door neighbor with a Nintendo as well. Um, and so I I was excited, and we were outside, and I ran over to talk to Brian. And his family was a little different than our family. They were more of a maybe indoors type. <laughs> anyway, sure. I run over there once in a lifetime, twice in a lifetime, moment in florida as a kid yeah. on christmas eve and i brian opens the door and he's like what's up and i'm like brian it's snowing you gotta come out here it's incredible and he goes uh well we gotta finish playing this game of risk so <laughs> i think well i maybe i'll come out i'll check it out later and then he closed the door and i was just, t- just <laughs> confused was taken aback I mean, and yeah. I was a kid, but I was like, what? So that's Who always finished? stuck with me. I mean, like, yeah. Risk, it it could have been anything, though, at that point. It could have been, like, the bacon's getting cold. I want to finish eating breakfast and take a nap. So, uh, No, I think the, the Risk detail adds a couple other questions, actually, <laughs> which primarily, I, who finishes a game of Risk? I feel like right, risk I mean, is, yeah. it may have... That may have been completely fabricated because they knew oh, no. very well they weren't going to finish. 
Oh, so this is now. Now you're assuming that Brian maybe had ulterior motive to close the door, and that was the best excuse he could think of <laughs> at that moment. No, I 100 percent believe his family was playing risk, and the level of playing a random board game and snow outside just had no differentiation in his mind. It was quite interesting. Hmm. Risk is there is a moment there. Uh, aside from risk kind of being random enough to be useless as a strategy game, there's a in, in inevitability to risk at some point where you're like, okay, we're done. You took over the world. Let's go do something else. It's not quite Monopoly in terms of a game that no one finishes, but I feel right. like it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. It's better than Monopoly in that sense because of its random nature. It can snowball into complete annihilation, but it I can see, also stalemate itself. So it's bad. Now, I remember loving that game as a kid, but I think it was more the concept of it and there wasn't the details. And then I played it much later with one of my younger cousins and I had strategies and they were pointless because he would just roll sixes. Yeah. And and so I quit, like you're saying. I literally quit and I said, I will not play this again. <laughs> this game insults my brilliant strategies. Uh, my, yeah, <laughs> my, uh, my brilliant brilliant. strategies are too complex for this primitive, primitive nonsense. See, no, I, I, yeah. Well, I bought, uh, <laughs> I bought uh, early in our marriage, uh, prior to owning an Xbox 360, which I was very re- resistant to buying for a long time. Uh, I we bought board games, but like this was. This was before you could buy Dominion and Carcassonne or whatever in Target, right? There's not a lot. Unless you knew where to go online, you weren't going to go find a good board game. And so I bought Star Wars Risk, uh, because heck yes, Star Wars Risk. That seemed like a great (laughs) idea. And we played it like once or twice, and I was like, Risk is bad, actually. And then we went back to playing Rummy and watching David Letterman, which is how we spent uh, our evenings prior to... Uh, prior to kids and video games and stuff like that, we were really exciting. Really, high, <laughs> I miss. I mean, high leverage. That sounds exciting, especially the fact that it was like a regular occurrence. So, yeah, I mean, in the first couple of years of our marriage, I I actually think, yeah, we we had a rummy scorebook, and Shannon would wipe the floor with me on a regular basis, um, and then we would play rummy. <laughs> uh all right, I'll allow so, it. So. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was, um, I made a uh, grits and eggs and andouille sausage this morning. Uh, cause I picked up some andouille. I did my Southern food supply run this weekend cause I was in Tennessee, um, getting the rest of our stuff from our storage unit and uh, bringing it up to our storage unit. Here. Okay. Yeah. I bought, um, I bought some andouille. I bought some country ham, which is strangely hard to find up here, but some ham trimmings to put in peas and whatnot mm-hmm. um i got some grits also hard to find up here uh cornmeal yeah grits yeah there's a there's a brand of grits you can buy here but it's like the um i can't remember the name of it there's like a sort of uppity novelty grain brand you'll see it in the grocery store there'll be one shelf that's like one bag each of like 13 different types of grain you know what i mean and they're all six dollars and they're all tiny yeah, I think I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. It has like some arrowroot powder. Yeah, exactly. They got and it's and it's barley and millet and uh, and and acorn dust or whatever. And one of those <laughs> up here, grits is relegated to the like novelty grain shelf, and it says grits, and under that it says polenta in parentheses. So. <laughs> What? That's <laughs> really messed sad. up, man. I know. So I, I wouldn't mean, yeah, we all know grits, grits and polenta are very similar but it just seems wrong yeah it's a bummer uh, i also bought some boudin because i saw it but then i left the boudin in my sister's car um and then i threw it away because you don't want to mess with boudin that's <laughs> so been in someone's the car boudin for a day. life cycle the normal <laughs> life cycle of the boudin sausage was complete yeah i think i think uh if were it a the country ham, I think that was fine. You know, that's preserved. It wasn't refrigerated to begin with. But um, I already was a little reticent to buy the boudin because I've actually not cooked it. I've only had it at people's houses and like family reunions down in Louisiana. And I thought, oh, I'll take a risk on this. Uh, 
you know, it's mildly sketchy form of sausage, but no. I mean, so basically it's meat, spices, rice stuffed in a natural casing. Exactly, yeah. There we go. So, boudin. Mm -hmm. But it was also refrigerated until it very much wasn't. Um, and then I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to serve that to my family. Uh, so yeah. Cool. Uh, I have other stories from this week, but I also want to open the floor to whatever you might want to talk about. Now you were on some kind of trip, I assume, to get this stuff or was that just incidental? No, this was the entire point of the trip. I used some Southwest points. I flew down. I rent, I rented a truck. And then I filled the truck, and then I moved the truck back here. Then I unfilled the truck, and then I was done. That sounds like a moving trip. Mm-hmm. I mm, I went to the symphony. Oh, I was nice. the last one for this season, I guess, and uh, it was pretty good. The main piece was "Symphony Fantastique" by Berlioz. Berlioz, I'm familiar. Yes, yeah. uh, it was I pretty played good. That one. Uh, how much symphonic work did you do? Uh, I mean, I was in the symphony for a while. Um, for our, for the benefit of our readers, I play violin and have since I was three. Uh, and I played violin as a primary. Uh, I was that was, I guess, my primary adjective for a number of years. Um, and I played in the youth orchestra and then I played in the high school youth orchestra before I was in high school because they needed more violins. And around that same time, I was also playing a sub for the Pensacola, excuse me, the Pensacola symphony. So there was a period of time where I was in, uh, the middle school youth orchestra, the high school youth orchestra, the high school, uh, uh, costumed, uh, uh, what's the ensemble like sub orchestra, just like the all-star team, as it were. That involved <laughs> dressing with, uh, in. it was called Switched on Baroque, it involved costumes. Oh, I so, remember this. Yeah. You, uh, I'm well. sure you've got a picture. I, I feel like I've sure. seen a picture recently of this. I've, I wore a couple of different, uh, well, anyway, that's I'm off track here. I, I was in the middle school and high school orchestras and then also the symphony for a little while. And that really highlighted how uh, bad the middle school orchestra was really. Um, <laughs> but I, I stayed with the symphony for a while. I mean, I, I did, um, I, I was in the, somewhere in the middle of the second violins for most of high school. Okay. I uh, played a number of things. Do you I, miss I, it at all? Uh, um, y- there, I think that out of the, out of the violin experiences that I had, um, ranging in scale and pressure from, uh, having to get up at 5 a.m. to, perform what switched on Baroque for the local morning news show, uh, over to like going and doing all state orchestra and like concerto competitions and, and don't forget playing with me on clarinet at nursing homes. Yeah. For yeah. People. Our nurse, our hot nursing home tour, mm-hmm. uh, that we would do. Um, yeah, no, the, the, like, uh, I actually, you and Abigail and I are performing a bassoon clarinet violin trio for, uh, public access television. That also oh, happened. Oh, you were at that? Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. That the was lady, special. The lady, the very, very kind public access television, <laughs> uh, host woman per, uh, describing Abigail's instrument as a bazoo, uh, quote unquote, <laughs> that happened. Yeah, she didn't um, go full bazooka, but she did she on air on describe it as a bazoo. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that out of all, like, I don't, I'm I've listed like you know twenty percent of the formats of violin experiences that I had. I think the one that I do miss the most is uh, the symphony and the everything up from uh, like chamber music up to symphony, like being a part of something. Uh, especially as an adult, I think about like the time that people take, cause this wasn't, you know, even the Pensacola symphony was very few people's full-time jobs, right? This was, um, right. community service a lot of ways. Hey, hey girl, what's up? Yeah, it's cause it's a magnet. It sticks to all sorts of stuff. All right, get out of here. All right. Oh, by the way, I had to comfort Archer earlier because he, in- he was distressed. He invented a new rule for travel Yahtzee. Uh, well, he thought it was a rule. Since the dice were in a line, he thought that you had to get a straight, like, in order. 
instead of just like <laughs> so like it only he's like straights are really hard with travel yahtzee and i was like why <laughs> it's like no the dice the have to rule. be in order it's like buddy the you gotta follow very much the rule invent he would invent the rule and then and follow then it be oppressed by it <laughs> impressed by his own <laughs> rules um so yeah, I, I mean, that was a long way to answer. Like, yeah, I, I totally miss the uh, symphony. And I think as an adult, the thing that I respect about that symphony is how much of everyone's time it takes to, you know, you make a couple hundred bucks or whatever, but it's really, it is a uh, community service. Now in a city like Chicago, that is not the case whatsoever, right? This is a, you know, they have a, a international quality symphony, I'm sure. I just haven't seen them yet. Um, and I imagine one day, like I could see myself like brushing up uh, later in life, like when I have when I am too old and grumpy for a rock band, uh, you know, devoting some extra time, you know, one, empty nest syndrome or something. I got some extra evenings. I'll totally At go what find it. Will you consider yourself too old to be an authentic rock band member? Uh, you know, I hate to throw the rock band under the bus. I think I could probably do both of those things and it would be fine. I was uh so never is my answer to that. Uh-oh. All right. Um yeah. But I mean yeah, I I, I do kind of wish I had some time. It, it is very time consuming. Like the symphony, a uh, symphony performance is, you know, a, a few practices and then a weekend. Like you're sacrificing a lot of time and I can't do that right now. But I do yeah. miss it. I miss uh, it. Pensacola Symphony hasn't fallen off. I didn't know a lot well, about good. it back then. <laughs> I imagine it's gotten better. But yeah. you're right, they can't pay enough to make it a job, but what it, most people who play in there are playing because that's what they want to do, and yeah. they need to make as much money doing it as possible. But also, probably that would be that I want to do this, and then all the things they have to do outside that, which are gigs and playing with multiple symphonies. I mean, um, yeah, I think that's your main group of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am, uh, I speak as someone who's not a professional musician, right? So, like, for me, uh, for, you know, a, a fair amount of people in the symphony, they're doing it for out of, you know, desire to do it. Uh, and then there's other people who, like, yeah, th- that one thing isn't going to pay rent, but they're, you know, like Abigail touring and playing with a bunch of different uh, symphonies and things like that. It's one piece of a bigger puzzle of, you know, s- scraping it and make, yeah, making it I work. Yeah, I mean, you... In le- other than the time it takes to do well at just being in a grand symphony, like yeah. one of the big ones that pays quite well, uh, it is a insane level of commitment to be a working musician. I mean, yeah. Well, it, and it just a- doesn't compare to other types of jobs that I know in common uh, people. Absolutely not. I was uh, I was just reading an article. Actually, uh, you should have Abigail look it up. It's very interesting. An article uh, interview with Philip Glass, uh, you know, modern American musician yeah, yeah. or composer Philip Glass. Yeah, he's American, right? Yeah. So he uh, he talked about uh, uh, how it everything worked out for him, and he's like eighty one, I think. Like he's he's oh, wow. very. And on um, this article, he's very reflective, and he talks about. Uh, moving to New York, and um, and he he said at the time, uh, and there's socioeconomic I- intrigue here, really, especially in the age of Uber and Lyft and all that stuff. He said he would um, he would uh, ri- drive taxis, and he would drive. So the, his system would be, um, excuse me, go to work at four o'clock in the afternoon, drive a taxi until uh, midnight work uh and like compose and practice and stuff up until 9 a.m take his kid to school at 9 a.m because he was like driving taxis professional working musician and raising children in new york city in in like the 70s or 80s or whatever (laughs) and uh and he said he only had to because of how well it paid and he said it was a relatively affordable city not like it is now and he so he could afford to raise kids um and do all of that stuff on a taxi driver's salary working four or five days a week um, in New York. So like, yeah, it was remarkable to hear him a, a, to hear that that was even a thing that was possible and think about like how, how, um, lopsided the economy is, uh, in places like that now, but also like he talked about, um, 
you know, he, oh, by the way, he would sleep, but <laughs> he would sleep after that. <laughs> well. Right. He, so he had a complete, we reverse schedule. So, cause he had to get his kid, you know, so he'd, he'd drive taxis until the early morning, compose, take his kid to school and then sleep from like nine thirty to, to three or whatever. And then do it again. Um, but his, what I took away from that is, uh, other than the lopsided economy was that, um, he said for a lot of people, they go to their job and then they do their job and they come home. But if you're, if you're trying to make a career as a creative, uh, any sort of creative endeavor, uh, you are spending six to eight hours a day practicing and getting better at whatever your craft is, you know, and like, that's just not the case for, you know, somebody who just is, works in insurance. Yeah. You wonder, because it, it's not something many people would do just because they chose to do it. Like in a job like mine, it's more, okay, here's the level of effort. Here's the pay. There is some consideration of, is this something that I want to have said I did? But mm. it's a little more direct. There, there has to be almost no one who does music or creative arts for life that made those calculations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you can't, right? Because there's no, uh, there's no tit for tat, really. Uh, right. So it, it's, Im well, it's at once impressive, but it, it immediately tells you something about that person as a person. And it doesn't always seem to make sense because, you know, I, of all the musicians I know, they're not all as similar as the stereotype might indicate. They're all over the board. But then you know there's that one thing about them somewhere that they're doing that because it's what they want to do. So, I don't know. Yeah, that struck me. Like, uh, I, and I didn't respect that, I think, when I was younger. Um, but there is a, you know, at any point you could hang it up and go get a job, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, uh, and or, you know, in the case of Philip Glass, like he could have gotten a nine to five and he could have gone to work after he dropped his kids off. And then he could. But he, he reoriented his entire life around uh, what worked, you know, around his music. Um, and like, yeah, he could have moved to, to Topeka and sold cars or whatever. Um, but he didn't let himself do that. <laughs> I mean, I Philip Glass auto sales. <laughs> I went and listened to a bunch. I actually, I, for someone who like has all of this, like really formal violin training, I didn't get any like music culture training. Mm -hmm. So like Archer's learning the circle of fifths now and hell if I ever learned the circle of fifths, I don't, I don't know anything about the circle of fifths. Really? Um, you didn't? Yeah. I, well, I will say there is a problem in broader education that I see that I encountered in musical education, which is that we come up with these ways to understand things and we just throw it at everybody. Mm. And it is an effort to figure out where somebody's going to really click with an idea. But yeah, we lean too heavily on these setups that do make sense. But Circle of Fists reminds me of that. At once, oh. it is literally just how it works and it's interesting. But I feel like I was never pushed past that to like come up with a way that made a practical like sense to me so yeah yeah it's it's a weird i mean this applies to like all our the like old know the rules to break it kind of thing right uh and and the circle of fists is a good uh is a decent example of that uh, i definitely i might have a different attitude where i raised with more music theory and like music education. Like I, my original point was just like, I never listened to Philip Glass cause I'd never was in a music class where someone told me to. So a lot of my, my knowledge of uh, classical music is actually firsthand. It's like, Oh, I know this. I know the, you know, Conus right. violin concerto cause I played it. <laughs> yeah. Or like I love Sibelius symphonies. And the reason I love uh, Sibelius, uh, I think it's number one is because playing that thing was one of the most excruciating like experiences of my a career in the symphony where <laughs> like the way that thing is written uh it re very toward the very end it requires everyone to not miss a note because the entire orchestra is like lurching together 
And like, if anybody screws up anything, it ruins like this like magnificent moment that yeah. So you're so anyway, you're like primed to actually appreciate music because I don't yeah. have all of that necessary Here's- knowledge. I have to hear what people say about it and then try to work that out. Well, it's experiential context, but like I don't have the music theory context. So while there are times that all of that comes together in a way that merely makes sense to me, or there's things that I find particularly moving or beautiful, there are absolutely entire blocks of music that I played that sounds like someone just writing some random stuff for a while. Like, I'm not... (laughs) I like uh, the middle of like a a Schubert piece or something like especially like mid romantic music to me like mm-hmm. um that stuff just sounds like uh it sounds like someone put a like a uh, programmed a computer to just go at a flat for a while until we do something else. Yeah, it sounds like you Thinking back on a piece, you might feel that, oh, yeah, here's the structure, that's this, I I recognize that. But while you're listening to ones like I think you're referring to, you Mm -hmm. feel like they're killing time a lot. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, okay, we have three things to do, and we will put stuff between them. Yeah, and there's, there's, um, that's why I was always more into the, um, like, Tchaikovsky, I feel like, has more unexpected turns of phrase in the music and interesting like uh harmonies and things but i can't put names on those right i other than a few like i know the diminished scale is the one that sounds like it's haunted but i'm not i'm not the one who's like oh look how they transition from a g to an a sus five here wow that's really you know because (laughs) i don't know the original rules enough to be impressed when someone messes with them and i try to think i don't have to like all of the different styles of music, but when it's when there's enough evidence that something is unique or or good in some kind of context or substance, in this case, let's say symphonies, and mm-hmm. I don't get it, like why am I listening to just filler between things that I want to listen to in this piece? I at least give the benefit of the doubt that I don't know the subtleties and I don't have all that background. Like you're saying the theory subtlety or like you were also saying the experience of actually playing it gives you something. Um, So I might liken it to, I may have brought this movie up before, but Blade Runner 2049 is the new one. Sure. Yeah. It looked a little bit like an action film. So people went to it. Um, and it was very confusing to them because there were maybe three action scenes that were really engaging. And in between yeah. was a lot of silence, uh, people looking at things, uh, short dialogues, just pans of like color fields and different things. I loved yeah. it and I was engaged more in those moments. But it was because, uh, you know, I had had that background and that interest, and I had put a lot of thought into that throughout my life. So I don't want to be the guy who thinks Blade Runner's bad because they just didn't have that background. Right. And so I mean, you know what? Some music may be just, uh, you know, uninspired. But there's that. <laughs> there, there is that uh, chance, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, and you it, and it's it's difficult because uh there's a fine line between uh you know uh, recognizing that you like something that someone might else might not like just because you have more context and becoming a guy who's like talking about wine mouth feel. Um, you know, like at some point you, you understand like at some point you're uh you could find yourself uh oh, seeing it, value it, where there's where you're there's making up value, yeah, or make, or you're so far detached from someone else's enjoyment that you might as well be making it up. Like there's not really right. At some uh, point, it's so specific as to only make sense to you, and yeah. you lose a little bit of something when you get to that point. I don't know that it's wrong, but like there's something about the interaction of how people experience things that seems really important to it. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, what I mean is that that guy, is, I'm picturing that guy in a scenario with someone else who's like fine with wine. Like, he needs to find someone else who also wants to talk about mouthfeel. Like, the two people talking about Blade Runner and interact, like, uh, and sharing on a on a more uh, with a, the context of the original movie, or like maybe they're both really into color grading or whatever. That's one thing. But this there is this like uh, spectrum of or 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 axis of um, context. And if you are too far down one end of the axis, you're just going to come across as as insufferable to someone who maybe thought Blade Runner was boring, right? Uh, you know. But then on the other hand, there are people way farther down the axis than you and I who I would not want to talk to because I would think they were insufferable. So how do so. we get along? <laughs> Should we respect <laughs> that we all have different contexts, or do we feel at some point people are wasting their time one way or another? I think you have to, um, as a recurring theme of our podcast or our, our learning how to be good people is, is you listen to the context of the other person and you find the middle ground no matter what. Um, eventually, maybe the answer is that you wait and see if they want to talk about color grading instead of opening with that, you know? Okay. Or, you know, just give them the opportunity to know it exists. And if they're interested sure. in more... Okay. All right. Let's try yeah, to be like, better people, I guess. Say like, oh man, I loved Blade Runner 249, and then just wait for a second and see if they say... And eh. sort of like give them a look <laughs> like, huh? huh? How about you? Yeah. And if they're like, it was boring, you're like, <laughs> okay. And instead of being like, oh man, are you sure? Because, and you know, the the, the what you do is find something else to talk about. Um, ultimately, uh, you're not a, an evangelical for Blade Runner 2049. No, I'll I mean, talk to you about it. I, I thought that be. movie was great. I, I've... <laughs> was surprised at how lurching and unforgiving that mu movie was. I felt like I had not seen a movie that felt like someone was lowering a pallet of bricks onto my chest in like a number <laughs> of years. That's a pretty good description. Yeah, it's just so big. I, I just, I feel like even modern war movies uh, don't carry the kind of just weight that a lot of scenes in that movie did. I think one of the reasons why it felt like that was, or the being crushed slowly thing, which I liked, was <laughs> yeah, that the bigness of, in the sort of impersonalness in of the environment and the world was not like being shoved in your face. It was a background to a very interpersonal story. And so you just mm -hmm. had that like, see see how pretentious we sound right now cam we had you know, that yeah I guess. we had that yeah that whole thing but it was just tied and filtered through these characters and i think that's real i thought it was pretty good if there's one thing i can peg it for is that i don't feel i feel like in the process of making that world really big and unforgiving and literal radioactive deserts of death i i feel like it lost some of the like cranky charm of the original one. I feel like it was it was not as charming a movie. Yeah, uh, I, I will agree sense. with that. It w there was a slight difference in the approaches to those movies, but yeah, overall it was pretty good. Yeah, I might actually try to go see uh, Avengers: Infinity Avengers uh, here in the next couple of days, just so I can see it. Yeah, it was um, the first one in a while that I was like, you know, I should probably see this. I, I saw the Ragnarok the other day. Oh. Uh, that was that was fun. That movie's that movie's nuts. I wonder how long Jeff Goldblum will be able to be in movies doing the literal exact same thing before people get tired of basically putting like a meme into their movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, the same answer as your rock band question. Oh, Naturally. oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I, I you want me to complain about something on the podcast? I can do that. Uh, I have a thing. Only if I can tell you why you shouldn't be complaining about it oh no this has to do with uh bureaucracy and authority in a uh -oh. way that i think will we might really this might have a feedback loop <laughs> we'll see all right go so for it. years ago not years ago a year ago uh pre-check tsa pre-check uh guy was at our our office at work mm -hmm. and i said sure you know what i fly a couple times a year i might be going to a conference or something i will pay the 86 dollars or whatever it is to get pre-checked It'll be great. I'll go the, the to the um, I'll go to the the airport. I'll throw my jacket over my shoulder. I'll I will flash my pre-check thing, and they'll nod and wink at me 
and I'll sort of Fred Astaire waltz my way past the security <laughs> line. Fast forward to uh, Friday night. So I, I got a, a late flight out of, uh, of Midway. Uh, at 10.30 was my flight, and I got there. You know, I get to flights ag- aggressively early because I, am, I hate the idea of missing a flight. So I got there, and there was no sign for pre-check uh, at all. Um, so I thought, oh, no worries there. It's just not that the, the, the you know, the very, in, the very front of the concourse area that you start down, uh, that, you know, they're, they're, my tea and cookies are waiting for me at the end of this hallway. <laughs> um, so I walked down, uh, there's still no sign of pre-check. There was a pre-check banner, but it was not, it seemed to have been tossed aside. It was a, <laughs> there was a eight foot tall banner that said TSA pre-check, but it was not, uh, it did not appear to be performing a sort of welcoming function so much as had it been moved because someone needed to get past it. Uh, so I stood in line. <clears throat> excuse me. I I went up to the to the lady who looks at your um, looks at your boarding pass and your ID, and I said, "Hey, I'm pre-check." And she said, "Oh, well, the pre-check line is closed." Uh, so turns out this is useful information. Uh, those of you out there looking to get pre-check special uh, special treatment. It has hours, so a ten thirty. You know, a ten. This has yeah, got to be per airport, though. I guess I don't know. There is a site that you can go to and put in a time in an airport, and it'll tell you whether the pre-check line is open. Turns out, I found this out later. So pre-check doesn't exist. Um, she said, as my special bonus as a pre-check uh, member, what I paid eighty six dollars to do is everything exactly the same, except I could leave my shoes on. Really? So yeah. So I'm like, all right, fine. I, I get to leave my shoes on. I'm not above a, a line. It, you know, I'm not special. I'm not going to oh, flip out. Oh, wait, you get to leave your shoes on in yeah. the normal line. Okay. Yes. Yeah, right. no, I have to go through the normal line. It's just that I get to leave my shoes on. No, I'm not even so sure I, I know that. So I figured that's still kind of funny because I can be like, no, no, no. They'll be like, sir, <laughs> sir, please put your shoes in the bag. And I'll be like, no. All I wanted to do was say, no, I'm pre-check and have them do something differently because everyone is stuck on their like, their flow chart right like they right. just just to be able to, to do to something and have them amount of chaos right just a little just a little bit and so i'm i stand in this stupid line for forever and something else you should know about me is i get to the airport early enough that i can opt out of the backscatter uh and uh you're familiar with the opting out process correct uh, I don't know if i am i assume you're talking about the terahertz scanner that looks through your clothes yeah, the the big tube that yeah, looks yeah. like uh, it's gonna like scan you into a chocolate bar in Willy Wonka. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I uh, that's not how that scene works. Um, anyway, I uh, I always opt out. What you do is you just tell the guy at the um, X-ray machine or whatever, I'm gonna opt out. You stand next to the X-ray machine waiting, and then they uh, call over a dude. Uh, you know, they, they got a male, a male, uh, what do they say? A male assist. We need a male assist over uh, yeah, here. Yeah, I have heard that phrase. Yeah. So what that is, is somebody like me who's like, no, I'm not going to stand in your radiation tube. I got some time. I'm going to make this Meanwhile, your but uh, let me just point this out. Meanwhile, you said standing by the x-ray machine. <laughs> so we've. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm standing outside the x-ray machine. I All mean, right. I, I did trust lean that on shielding. It. I did lean on it at one point. <laughs> I, like, I should, I should probably not lean on the X-ray machine. Um, I mean, so anyway, I'm standing there. Um, all your stuff goes through, and they tell you to keep an eye on your stuff because that's what they have to say. And inevitably, your stuff is not in a place where you can really keep an eye on it. So what you're really keeping an eye on is someone holding your stuff and walking away more than your stuff itself. Um, so my stuff all goes through the X-ray machine. I'm standing there. Uh, and it turns out, if you opt out, you have to take your shoes off. <laughs> no! I was like, "Are you?" I'm pre-check. And he's like, sir, you opted out. You have to... <laughs> this is so. like the end or beginning of a less exciting Curb Your Enthusiasm. This is... It, it was very Curb Your Enthusiasm-y. Because I stand there. Uh, my shoes have gone through the thing. So now I'm, I'm standing on the cold, cold linoleum with my, with my sock feet. Uh... And as I'm standing there, the the square uh, the the I want to say square jawed. She was a it, that that sounds critical of her of her looks. It was more that she was very stern. stern. There's a very stern faced woman guiding people through the backscatter. And at one point, she uh, I guess at some at some interval they send people through the, the metal detector instead. 
who knows why i don't know maybe the metal detector company wants to make sure they're not left out but i was like i'll walk through a metal detector shoot so i like i was like hey hey can i can i and he's like no sir you opted out please stand still <laughs> so i was trapped um this was 10 30 at night and there was only two um two uh security lines going and they were kind of on the opposite ends of the entire area of like nine security lines it turns out so i'm standing there for i uh, I actually don't know how long because I did not have my phone uh, and I don't wear a watch. And I kept trying to see if anyone in line had a watch on that I could steal a glance at or ask them. Did not see a person with a watch. I don't know how long I was standing there. Probably like 15 or 20 minutes. My feet got very cold. And I asked a guy at the x-ray thing. He didn't know what time it was because, I mean, if you worked at the x-ray thing, you wouldn't want to know what time it is either, right? You just, you're at the worst job in the universe. You're just going to do it until they tell you you can stop. You can't. Uh, you, you don't even comprehend it anymore. You've been leaning yeah. against x-ray machines for too long. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, he uh, he's leaning farther into the x-ray machine to further lose track of like <laughs> the ability to track time. And I uh, my stuff's out there. I'm standing there. And then eventually... That guy, so the guy putting things into the x-ray machine uh, would glance at the other guy who was like looking at all the things on the monitor as they go by. That guy seemed remotely empathetic to my plight. And uh, he would glance around nervously because I was looking at him kind of, I was just kind of seeing if I could laser, if my eyes could burn through his skull eventually. Uh, and he's eventually said, you know, I don't think we have a, I don't think we have a CPO over here, whatever the, you know, the acronym is for guy who can give me right. a pat down guy who can touch you. Yeah. So there, um, <clears throat> I stood there for, uh, 20 or 30 minutes, uh, at least because eventually when I did get through all of this, I was, I got to my flight right as it was boarding. Let me skip to the end. I did not miss my flight, but, uh, it was, uh, it was an excruciating experience. Eventually, they closed down the other security line, which is where, I guess, the one guy who could do pat-downs was uh, located. And then he came over and gave me the full pat-down, and I got my stuff and, and took off. Well, to um, say that backfired would be an understatement. Yeah, I can't I can't emphasize enough how little the well, pre-check let me did. Make, let me make you feel even better, which is that I have pre-check, but I got it for free as part of my job. That's understandable. Yeah, and it is maybe less useful than you think because situations I've encountered, I haven't found one that's closed. There are airports that didn't have them implemented, but now I think they've got that covered. I've had lines where the pre-check line just filters right into the normal line, and <laughs> there's been as many people in the pre-check line it's like those, um, yeah, it's just a placebo line. Makes you feel important, I guess. I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I kept my shoes on. I'm not sure. Uh, also, and here's my favorite part. You randomly can be removed from pre-check as a hyper-random uh, check and balance against bad people with pre-check, I guess. So well, you look on your boarding pass and it... If it says pre-check, you're good. Because I went up one time and I'm like, hey, pre-check. And they're like, it's not on your boarding pass. And I said, well, I signed up for it. I bought it. I assure you I'm pre-check. And they said, well, it will randomly deassign Un-pre-check you? Oh, so it's not. I was un They're not physically pulling you out of the line. They're they're like uh, taking it off, literally taking it off your boarding pass. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, so. I agree, and I'm going to still go through the radiation tube because I I don't know. It's too late for me. Right. I mean, I it, it's sort of a sunk cost fallacy for me. Like, I have been bopping out for so long. I yeah, you might as I'd... well keep up. Yeah, it's too late yeah. for me. I've been scanned. I'm no, either going to die or, you know, Get superpowers. lose track of time. I don't know. Yeah. I, uh... So I, I think like all I want out of that sort of, oh, there's a sort of a post uh, epilogue here, which is that I was on my way to my flight, very angry with very cold feet uh, on the, on the moving sidewalk, t fussing at Shannon about how mad I was. And then I, uh, I heard, uh, Cameron, 
Daigle, Cameron Daigle, your laptop is at the security counter. Did you that come through? Uh, I heard my it. laptop. Cameron, uh, someone attempting to say my last name, telling me my laptop was at the security counter. I had left my laptop. I went all the way back to the security area and I said, Hey, good to see you guys again. <laughs> and they did not think that was funny. <laughs> they and think gave me my laptop. Funny. Yeah, I, I was all I wanted at some point was like a touch of like a smirk or like any sort of sign you know, of humanity. Yeah, anything. And that's that's all I want most of the time is for someone to look at me and give me some <laughs> tiny indication that they know that their bureaucracy is as silly as I know it is. Well, and most most of the time people are not going to do that. I would like to I don't know if you could call this defending bureaucracy because I couldn't imagine doing such a thing. But I want to make you feel better about humans for a second. All right. I had this conversation with someone just this weekend, but it's a thought that I've had many times, which is sometimes I'll look at people and this is a fun game. Imagine they're fancy apes, right? Imagine they're not humans, but like an intelligent species of ape that live somewhere else and just watch everything they do and see how funny you think what they do is just Normal okay. things just to take on this, oh my gosh, because we have this bias, like what we do seems normal because, oh, we do it. So, one of the best things about humans is that when a stranger walks into the same place as you, or you enter an area where there's quite a few strangers, you don't freak out and try to fight them. Right. <laughs> this is a really basic thing that we take for granted. Uh, okay. So imagine I'm at a, a gathering and I have a person I know. And so we're cool and we're talking and everything's fine. And then another person walks in the door of this gathering. You might not think anything of it. Well, imagine we're not humans, but we're talking and we both look at each other and we're like, do you see that guy? I see that guy. How do you feel? I feel very threatened. I feel very threatened. And we might like just throw a piece of bread at him or something and just act a little agitated. And then we're like, we should probably act like we're going to kill this guy just in case he tries to kill us. And then we would do that. And, you know, it would be really awkward at cocktail party or any kind of gathering at all, much less standing in line at an airport with everyone you don't know. So... It could be a lot worse. We don't try to kill each other on sight. I, I, you know, I think that apes are probably terrible at standing in line. Um, no humans. I am. I do sometimes think about that. The uh, the uh, the ability of people to kind of bottle up minor frustrations and tolerate things. Uh, my mom. So. Uh, uh, by the way, I think that if you threw bread at someone in a restaurant, you probably would end up fighting them. Um, <laughs> well, that's so the problem. It escalates. That. But, you know, right. I, I yeah. couldn't stop it. Yeah, the the the, uh, the escalation will, will totally still happen, but thankfully it doesn't usually start. Um, I have heard that uh, males will uh, all – a typical male behavior – I don't remember where I read this – is you will turn and look at whoever comes in a room. Uh, females typically don't do that. Really? This is a general thing. Again, I'm not sourcing this with any particular uh, item. I feel like I read it somewhere, but uh, I definitely do that. If you see a, a male instinct and you see something out of the corner of your eye, just to look at it and, and oh, yeah. case it. I do that. I put my back to walls. I, oh, possible. I do that too. I, I, I try all the time. I, I need to have like the room in front of me. If right. I'm in like a restaurant, I, I absolutely hate uh, having the like the waiter come up behind me. Or whatever. I need to be fit. like Shannon knows this, and she always lets me sit down first. Right, and the exact same yeah. thing with my wife. So, at the very least, we can see that, like you're saying, we're controlling some very deep instinct. <laughs> sure, it's there. It's yeah, it's there. Um, the uh, my mom was uh, trapped at the Denver airport when the uh, she was on standby. Uh, when the, she just told me this story, but by the way, I drove up in the moving truck with my mom. So we talked for a long time and, uh, 
She was a she was in, on standby flying out of the Denver airport on Delta when Delta's systems went down a few months ago. If you recall, like they, oh, yeah, they yeah. everything went down super hard to the point where she said people were coming in to work because they hadn't been notified that the systems were down because the systems to tell them to not come to work because <laughs> the systems are down were down. Not good. Yeah. So it was there were all these people trapped in the airport and um she said she finally she was in the Denver airport for 18 hours or something like that before uh, they snuck her onto a, a uh, she got that, the, uh, she actually got that, that wink and nod, basically, like the, the bit of humanity that we pine for. Oh, so uh, there was a lady who was literally marking uh, seat numbers on uh, people's uh, boarding passes with a crayon. Mom doesn't, I said, why did, where did she get a crayon? Mom does not know. Uh, but there was a, uh, it was probably a crayon in used airport to like, Denny's menu. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, I think it might have been the one they use on you know if they're gonna, it might have been like a grease pencil or something like something they're using for the on the mechanical side of things. Uh, but she was marking people's writing people's seat numbers on a crayon, and mom stood next to that desk for like hours. And eventually, the woman looked at her and said, "Like, look, I got a seat. Just get on, get on the airplane." And she did, and she got to uh, Atlanta. But when she got to Atlanta, she said it was even more dire. Um, and you know how long Atlanta's concourses are. Yeah. She said there was a line to the information help desk that spanned the length of the concourse. Uh, there was a line of people ah, that went as no far thanks. as you could see down the concourse. And she said she did, for all of those people, like we're saying, there was not, you know, no, it did not devolve into like a, a, a fight. Uh, but there was, she said there was one lady that she saw like lose it, like break down and, and start not like start yelling, but just like crumble. Like the, the human, our, our ability to not freak out and fight each other in a situation like that. We just direct it inwards until it crushes us. Exactly. (laughs) This lady, you know, it crushed her, uh, and she was sobbing and like freaking out and, and people had to console her and stuff. Um, mom ended up, the did not get a flight out of Atlanta after that. She actually, uh, dad booked her a hotel outside of Macon and she drove to Macon in a rental car, uh, on 28 hours of being awake. Uh, and to give you an idea of how like hardcore my mom is, cause she, she has a, a pulmonary therapy, pulmonary therapist degree, something like that. Like she, she had a medical degree and did night shifts and she did double night shifts and stuff. And she was like, yeah, I was up for 28 hours and I was driving and I was like, man, I'm, you know, this is, this is challenging. But she's like, you know, it was good to know I could still do stuff like that. (laughs) She was like, it's good to, good to stretch the muscles a little bit. She's like, I've been up longer than that. She's like, eventually you get up so long, you're awake so long that you can't sleep and and then you're in trouble. And I was like, what? So like my mom has uh, pushed pushed those boundaries over the years, and and she uh, she said she she actually kind of appreciated knowing that when she needed to, she could she could still pull that kind so of stuff off. She's holding it together. Oh, my, no one holds it together more than more than my mother. Strong strong lady, my mom. <laughs> well, it's nice to know that humans have something going for them. The ability to not uh, rip each other to shreds when we enter a room, I think, is a good baseline for uh, for for the TSA in general existing. Right, but like, I could still throw bread, or is that? I mean, give it, give it, give it a shot. Uh, well, I mean, if you want to escalate, there are worse ways than to just throw bread. Bread-based ex- escalation is ultimately probably more harm- harmless. Well, actually, you know what? When you talked about escalation and stuff, I just thought about the closest analog I can think to a bunch of apes eyeing each other and, and like screaming and almost getting into a fight is a guy with a gun walking into a room where another guy has a gun, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, what's amazing is that outside of certain situations, it's still pretty incredibly rare that that comes to a fight. Uh, quickly, one more uh, example. The worst one recently that I can think of is the uh, protesters, the Nazis and the Antifa protesters. Sure. So you have to understand, I'm not going to get into the political aspects of this, but Many of those people were armed with serious weapons, 
like large amounts of people who absolutely hated each other were armed with deadly force projecting weapons mm. and they didn't get into a shooting war that there was violence but i th- i i thought about that a couple times and it it it's interesting and it makes me a little bit less pessimistic about humans surviving <laughs> into the near future well i think that uh i genuinely think that people don't want to hurt other people and uh and isn't it uh i want to say there's I'm, I'm just rattling off statistics i don't have uh actual evidence for but the uh the oh, a number people don't actually shoot to kill yeah, they don't shoot at each other very much in a war, and up and I want to say they switched from sandbag targets to human shaped targets after World War II. The military did, and then then that to get affected them used to it. Yeah, so there's actual psychological uh, barriers that they sought to overcome right. with people, and it's fairly commonly known that when they're in combat, most people aren't just out to kill. You have this right. sense of protecting those people who you're with. Yeah. And so in that sense, though I don't think humans have a good nature, like I, I, it may be a bit um, amoral naturally, uh, it's not actively the other way. So yeah, I want I mean, to believe we can control ourselves, at least till we get our spaceships and yeah. can start a new place. We'll peace out, and then we'll have all these same problems on Mars with our... Uh, yeah, but Mars problems are cooler. Muscatania, or is that what he's going to name it? I don't know. Uh, nah, forget that. I mean, if I have a whole planet, I'm going to go find my own little place and call it something cool. <laughs> I look forward to visiting your hermit cabin on Mars one day. <laughs> and then and when I walk in the door, you'll throw bread at me. I'm going to freak out. Freak <laughs> out.